I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. This week on Ashes, Ashes, we're turning up the temperature as we look at the effects and impacts that the increasing heat of climate change is going to have on our world, on each of us individually, the infrastructure that ties us together, our agriculture, and even in the end, our individual health. And this episode is really timely for me personally, David, because here in the Southeast United States, summer just arrived and it is hot, it is humid, and it's only going to get worse. It's a uh, frigid 53 degrees, 12 degrees Celsius here up in New York, so uh, I don't entirely sympathize with you. I'm a little jealous. But with that in mind, well, let's just jump right in. In 2010, Russia experienced one of the most severe heat waves ever. Over 10,000 people died. Forest fires were sparked and crops were destroyed. And while we've had more deadly heat waves, researchers at the time thought it may have been among the worst heat waves in at least 500 years. But because of a rapidly changing climate, this event will likely seem unremarkable in the face of what's to come. With just a 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius global warming, heat waves of much greater magnitude will be likely and more frequent. And last year, Europe had a heat wave that was so hot they named it Lucifer. Well, with a 1.5 to 2 degree warming, heat waves will occur every single year that exceed Lucifer's temperature. And they will occur in Asia, Australia, the United States, China, India, Latin America, North Africa, and the Middle East. So pretty much the whole world. Pretty much, David. And when global warming reaches a four degree increase, heat waves will occur every other year above 55 degrees Celsius. Now for comparison, that 2010 Russian heat wave, which by the way, wasn't just isolated to Russia, but was experienced by much of the Northern Hemisphere. Well, that heat wave recorded a 53.5 degrees Celsius record or 128 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, based on current trends in just 80 years, parts of Asia and the Middle East will be completely inhospitable. And while that might sound insane, and to be fair, climate predictions are still an exact art, as we'll explore later on in this episode, these problems are only going to get much, much worse. Rising heat will make humid regions more humid, and dry areas will expand. And this incoming heat will have an accelerating impact on, among many things, the global water crisis that's going on right now. Currently, 40% of the world's population experiences water scarcity. And this scarcity alone may displace up to 700 million people from their homes over the next 12 years. And this heat plays a big role in that. 12 years. Uh, I, I want to interrupt you just for a second, Daniel, and emphasize how short of a time that is. A lot of the times when we, we have these conversations, it says, well, in the coming decades, by the end of the century. But this is 12 years. That's the very near future. Yeah. And as we'll see, the effects of this heat are already being widely felt around the globe today. And as the global temperature turns up, clouds will get pushed into higher latitudes towards the poles, and the dry edges of the tropics will expand poleward as well, meaning that some of the most fertile and populous places on Earth won't get enough rainfall to regenerate groundwater, and agricultural production will suffer tremendously. It's not all bad, though. I mean, the Arctic needs those clouds, right? I suppose the clouds will add to the albedo in the Arctic and maybe... Uh, this is what they call me, David Mr. Positive, Torsivia. I don't think anybody calls you that. <laughs> well, let's do the science. So David, you ever heard of convection before? Just like my toaster oven. Maybe. Well, when you talk about it in terms of the global climate, there's a very simple process that happens where the heat from the sun warms up the surface temperature, and that causes water to evaporate. That evaporation gets into the air. The air is now warm. And because this warm air that's saturated with water is less dense than colder air, it starts to rise up into the atmosphere. And as it does, this air starts to cool and it can no longer hold as much water. So it releases it as rain. And now that colder water that is now dry drifts a little bit towards the poles. It falls to the surface and now it provides that undercurrent which pushes hot air back up, creating this cycle of convection. 
And a lot of this convection starts in the tropics. And this is described by a process called Hadley's cell. And this process is expanding. As the globe gets warmer and more energy is added to this very hot region of the Earth, these tropics, there's a lot more water that's getting evaporated, a lot more water that's entering into this atmosphere and these systems. And what that means for the tropics is a lot more rainfall, heavier rain, more variability in the rainfall. But it also means that as that air now drops this water, you have a lot more cold, drier air moving towards higher latitudes in the north, higher latitudes in the south. And as it falls to the ground, it adds to these dry areas called subtropical zones that become deserts. And these zones are expanding and getting worse. So to boil it all down into something short and simple, what it basically means is that tropical areas are going to become wetter and hotter. And that humidity, which we'll explore later, is going to be a big problem. The additional water coming out could overflow, raining too much and hurting crops. But the areas on the peripherals of these tropical zones, these subtropic dry zones, which Daniel mentioned, well, they're going to get drier. They're going to be more desert-like and they're going to get bigger, expanding both towards the pole and towards the tropics itself. And this is where most of the growth in these areas are happening. As this Hadley cell expansion takes place, these areas are where it gets bigger. The rain increases in the tropics, but most of the growth and the damage done to the environment is in these subtropic dry zones, which expand to create more deserts. This is the same process that transformed the vast rainforest of Africa into the dry savanna land that we know today. Now imagine that playing out on a global scale. And that's just one of the many problems that we're going to be facing over the next few decades from this rising heat. But the dangers of heat go beyond just crop failure and water scarcity. It's estimated that 30% of the world's population now lives in areas that experience heat and humidity conditions known to cause death. What we're looking at for the future, and the near future, is the introduction of regularly occurring heat and humidity events that surpass the most extreme heat waves experienced in modern human history. But David, I think there's a common response to this, which is that we humans will find a way to adapt to whatever changes occur in the world. And it is true that from an evolutionary standpoint, the success of the human species has come in large part from our ability to adapt and work together as social groups to overcome environmental challenges. But there are big differences in the way humans are organized today relative to the majority of human history. Historically, humans have adapted themselves according to the local environment and in smaller but more tightly knit groups. But modern civilization attempts to transcend this need for local adaption and break down these tightly knit communities into their constituent parts to serve the specialized needs of civilization. And so we have, in effect, sacrificed our two most powerful traits, adaptability and the formation of tight communities, for the benefit of creating a global civilization. We as humans no longer adapt to the environment, we adapt to the needs of the global economy. And as long as we're here in the philosophical realm, I suppose that concept is neither bad nor good. It's just a different way of organizing ourselves. But in practical terms, what it means is that our survival now hinges not on the traits that made us successful in the first place. Our survival hinges on the strength of that global economy, which we now depend on. So in that context, in addition to asking how we as humans might adapt to this rising heat, it may be an important question to ask, how will this global civilization adapt? How will the global economy adapt? And now our modern world was built in just the past couple hundred years. And that means that our modern global infrastructure was built within a narrow assumed range of temperature and environmental conditions. So David, Given the fact that heat will be rising around the world and some of these desert areas will be expanding, how might this affect this global infrastructure? Well, it turns out when you start looking at things from an infrastructure perspective that adaptation is hard, it's expensive, and it involves a lot of rebuilding everything we have because like you mentioned, Daniel, it just wasn't designed to exist in a world where the temperature regularly climbs into the inhospitable. We built our civilization during a very predictable, consistent time in weather. We were lucky. It's not too hot. It's not too cold, at least most of the time in most places. Uh, we can predict things. There's not much variability. 
But with the additional energy coming into the system from climate change, all this extra heat trapped in the global weather environment, well, that has effects on this variability. We can no longer trust that things are going to operate within a certain margin, whether that's temperature, whether that's rainfall. And going forward, our infrastructure isn't designed to cope with this variability, with these extremes. So let's explore what that might mean in some areas. And again, some of these problems are happening right now. We find a lot of systems in our transportation infrastructure that start to struggle under certain conditions of heat and humidity. In June of last year, for example, temperatures in Phoenix, Arizona, were so hot that close to 50 flights were canceled. Planes that were built to withstand a maximum temperature of 118 degrees Fahrenheit could not take off in what was 120 degree weather. And to be fair, Daniel, it's not that the planes can't withstand 120 degrees heat, like they suddenly turn into this molten pile of aluminum on the runway, but it's just a quirk in the way that flight happens. As air heats up, it becomes lower pressure. Uh, It's able to hold less weight as these molecules spread out from each other with all the extra energy they're holding. And that means a plane just can't get enough lift. These smaller body planes, not the super jumbo jets like a 787 or a 777. Instead, these smaller planes, their wings are too small to be able to fly in these high temperatures. And they just literally can't take off. In order to get around this, we would have to design new planes that have higher thrust, larger wings, or build runways that are just longer so that the additional time in order to get enough speed to attain lift is available on the runway. And all these fixes are expensive. Designing planes costs billions of dollars, takes years or decades even, and runways oftentimes run into geographical limits that they just can't be built any longer. These aren't easy problems to fix. And in a lot of cases, the runways themselves face problems when temperatures get too hot. In 2012, one of the runways at the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, which serves Washington, D.C., melted in weather that was just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The plane itself sunk down a little bit into the tarmac and couldn't take off. And obviously, airports are places where there's a high demand for investment. They serve a lot of people. So I suppose you can justify the cost of upgrading the tarmac itself so that it can withstand higher heat. But where do you think you find similar infrastructure, David, all over outside of airports? Daniel, I think that's probably roads. That's right. It turns out building roads that don't melt in high temperatures is, who would have guessed, expensive. So most roads are designed to withstand up to 50 degrees Celsius. Above that temperature, they start melting. And to be fair, that's pretty hot. But atmospheric temperature is not the same as the temperature you find on a road. So the way that we measure temperature, and this is important for this episode, is as follows. You place a thermometer two meters off the ground in the shade. So that means there's no sun hitting it directly. You're above the area where temperature is radiating directly off the ground. And this is called two meter atmospheric temperature. And this is when somebody says a temperature, this is most of the time what they're talking about. There are a bunch of different ways to measure temperature, which we'll talk about later, things like wet bulb. But this is the go-to that the weather report is giving you. Now, of course, we know standing in the shade is going to be a lot cooler than standing in the sun. And where do most roads spend their lives? Sitting in the sun. And of course, they're dark black, directly on the ground, absorbing all that extra heat. So that means road temperature can be anywhere 15, 20, or as high as 30 degrees above ambient temperature. And so that means temperatures of 30, 35 degrees Celsius can very easily surpass that 50 degree melting point of the road. And even a mild heat wave can cause the road to quite literally melt. But it is possible to design roads that can withstand this heat. There was a heat wave in 1995, and it inspired a new type of asphalt that could withstand up to 80 degrees Celsius before it started to melt. But as you would expect, it's a lot more expensive. And it's not so practical to replace all your roads. In the UK, for example, only about 5% of all roads they have are made of this expensive asphalt. And this is something that actually happens. It's not theoretical. In January of this year, just a few months ago, temperatures set a 79-year record in Sydney, Australia at 117 degrees Fahrenheit. And because of this intense heat, about six miles of highway melted and were impassable. That's 47 degrees Celsius for those keeping track at home. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of uh, temperatures in this episode, David. Celsius, we've got Fahrenheit. Bear with us. We'll try to translate some of them, but can't get them all. 
Sorry, everyone. It's hard to jump back and forth. I'm actually, I, I use Celsius exclusively. I switched in large part because of these climate discussions. It's a lot easier to, to internalize what that temperature is when it's what you're used to. So it's even more confusing for me now switching back and forth between all this. So, And as long as we're talking about transportation, this isn't just roads, but also the rail lines that trains go on. So the steel lines that make up train tracks, if they get too hot, they actually buckle and bend. And just like these roads that we talked about, they can be 20 to 30 degrees Celsius hotter than the ambient air. Yeah, you can actually see videos of this online. And it's really amazing because a train is coming in and this rail line itself, it looks perfectly straight, like there's no problems. But as soon as the weight and the pressure of the train starts approaching, it flips the switch basically in the crystal structure of these rails and they just click and all of a sudden they're wavy and out of whack and the train conductor has to slam on their brakes in order to stop. And it's an increasing hazard as these temperatures continue to climb. Train operators try to monitor the temperatures of the rails. If they detect that they're getting too hot, they have to decrease train speeds. And when they actually do buckle, you do have to wait for them to cool down before you can even start repairing them. So this may be an additional stress on an already crumbling infrastructure component. And so those are the surfaces that our automobiles and our trains, even our planes, travel on. Planes, trains, and automobiles. But what about the actual vehicles themselves? It's no shock to anybody, but higher temperatures decrease the efficiency of just about everything when it comes to either burning fossil fuels or for those of us who are feeling green in their electric cars, well, your battery discharge, your range is going to be dramatically cut down as these temperatures continue to climb. In fact, most electronics machinery, they have upper temperatures they're supposed to be run at. The iPhone, for example, can only operate between about 32 and 95 degrees Fahrenheit, which is between zero and 35 degrees Celsius. You've probably had this happen to you if you've ever left your phone in your car uh, over the summer when it gets hot and toasty in there like a big oven when you go to turn on your phone, you press the button and you can see that it's shut down because of high temperature and you have to wait for it to cool down before you can keep using it. Well, in the future, we might find that our electric cars are doing the same thing. A particularly hot day in a place like Phoenix in your black car, you go to flip the switch and oh, the car won't turn on. And if it does, expect your range to be cut down dramatically. Couple that in with additional air conditioning needed in order to just basically survive in these high temperatures. And you're going to find these electric vehicles are far less efficient than they would be under more optimal circumstances. But that's not to say internal combustion isn't also damaged by these high heats. Higher temperatures mean lower efficiencies, just like low temperatures do. And when you're operating outside the optimal bounds of temperature, efficiency is cut down dramatically, you're burning a lot more fuel, and you're getting us into an even worse situation when it comes to this climate change in the first place. Well, David, you mentioned the AC that's in our cars, but I think this would be a good place to transition to talking about the air conditioning in our buildings where most of us depend on it for most of the day. Because as we'll discuss, as we'll see in this episode, there are places in this world where this heat will become so bad that the only way to assure that you can keep surviving is through constant air conditioning. So if we're going to be experiencing a lower efficiency for these systems that we're going to rely on, is that a threat to our ability to deal with this rising heat? Because I don't know about you, David, but when I turn the AC on, usually it's because I'm hot. And air conditioning takes a ton of energy. And as we've discussed in our infrastructure episode, our power grid, at least in the United States, is already at max capacity in summertime in hot conditions where there's a peak demand for electricity, mostly because of the demand for air conditioning. So it raises a question in my mind, are we capable of providing the power that we need for these systems? Power is one of the major considerations when it comes to these heat waves. And there's a number of factors that goes into complicating this. So again, as we've mentioned, as temperatures increase, efficiencies decrease almost across the board. And one of the major areas that this happens is actually in power generation. But it also happens in power transmission. It happens in the efficiency of the air conditioning units themselves. And all this adds up. In addition, while you're reducing the efficiency of power, meaning the power that you generated, well, there's less of it, more of it's being lost during transmission, you're using more of it to do the same amount of cooling. Well, at the same time, you're dramatically increasing how much power you need. Hot days, where there's lots of air conditioning on, can increase power demands by as much as 21% above normal peak levels. That's a huge demand on the grid, and it's only with our current fossil fuel and nuclear-based grid that we can respond to these sudden spikes in demand. Additionally, 
the transmission of this energy on these hottest days is dramatically decreased. So again, as we've talked about in the past, it's not just about generating energy, it's about transporting it to where it needs to go. And that is done through long copper wires, these high tension lines that are built all over the country and all over the world. And these lines, well, when they get hot, they become far less efficient, a decrease of 1% for every 3 degrees Celsius raised. And the same is, of course, true for transformers. Transformers have maximum operating temperatures as well. And in the past, they've been responsible for a number of brownouts and fires because when these temperatures are overloaded and the electricity running through them is not cut, the transformer itself bursts into flames, which causes cascading failures along the entire grid. So here we have a problem of generation, not enough, of transmission, it's less efficient, and then the final distribution from these transformers being overloaded by the heat and the needs of the system, and you have what amounts to a perfect storm. And this is going to be a huge problem as we go forward and need to shift our grid from one that is based on fossil fuels to one that is more built around renewables and that ultimate goal of 100% renewable electricity. And there's a number of reasons why, so let's explore this. So let's first look at our current power generation system and where these inefficiencies occur. During heat wave events, for every 1 degree Celsius above normal operating temperatures, we see a 2% reduction in power produced by gas, fuel, and nuclear plants. And this is because of reductions in cooling capability, in thermal transfer, and most importantly, in nuclear, by the temperature of water. So almost all nuclear plants are built on a large body of water, whether it's a lake, whether it's a river, or... Or whether it's on the coast where they're going to be experiencing rising seas. Exactly, Daniel. And so they intake this cold water from whatever body of water it is, pump it through the plant, turn it to steam, use it to cool their systems, generate electricity from it, and then pump it back into the body of water as much hotter water. And when there's a large temperature differential between this water and the temperature that they're generating in the plant, so that is to say the colder the water that goes in, you get more power out of the plant. And there are limits to this water. When it hits a certain temperature, when it gets too hot, the plant reduces efficiency a lot. But there is a point where suddenly the plant is not shedding enough heat. They either have to reduce power in order to not overload the heat transfer system, or the plant itself can undergo catastrophic heat accumulation and have to be entirely shut down until water temperatures decrease. And the safety margins of these vary from plant to plant, depending on how they're designed and what the body of water is and what the expected temperature of these waters were going through time. As we see these heat wave events dramatically raising the temperatures of these bodies of water, we might see more interruptions in these cooling systems for nuclear plants, for fuel plants, for any plant that depends on a body of water as its main cooling source. And this problem is coming soon to us. Some studies have found that some of the thermoelectric plants in the Mediterranean region could face 100% loss of power generation because of these high water temperatures by 2030. And in the United States, 27% of such facilities will be heavily impacted in the same time period. That's expensive to fix. It means we're losing a large portion of our power generation capability. And more importantly, when it comes to dealing with these heat waves, these are the plants that can easily scale up. And this brings us to the problem with renewables here. As we've talked about in our power episode, you have to balance the generation capabilities of the grid with the demands of the grid. If you have too much generation and not enough demand, well, the grid itself can crash. You have to take these things offline, shut them down so that they're not going. And that's losing money. When I build whatever power generator I am, if it's not running at full capacity, I'm losing money on it. So I'm less likely to invest in it to build things that are this extra surplus power. Power companies have realized this, realized they need this extra generation capability anyway, so they'll pay natural gas generators and other fuel-based generators like nuclear plants to ramp up and ramp down depending on the current needs of the grid. But a solely renewable-based grid doesn't have that capability. You can't turn up solar power. You can't increase wind speed. You're bound by the limits of that device. And so that means a grid based solely on these renewable products, needs to have dramatically more capacity than a traditional fossil fuel and nuclear-based grid. Exacerbating this problem even more, when these heat waves need the most power, is generally in the mid-afternoons, the hottest part of the day. And that is also the least efficient time for wind generation, which has been historically one of the major overproducers of this renewable power. Even worse than that, during these extra hot days, wind tends to be less intense. So even when you are generating power, it's not as much as you would normally. So you have this sort of inverse correlation that wind power is generating power when you least need it and sitting idle when you most. And to get around that, it means you have to build dramatic 
huge amounts of additional power generation into the system, which is expensive, time-consuming, and going to be difficult to find people willing to invest in this extra surplus generation when they're not guaranteed any sort of repayment for it. This is a problem that the grid just doesn't have answers to right now. They're working on grid storage systems, which would help mitigate some of this, but when you have a particularly bad heat wave that overwhelms even these storage systems, well, then the brownouts are going to happen, the power is going to go out, and as we'll explore later on in this episode, that might have deadly consequences. Well, David, that sounds like an extremely complicated problem, but you're talking about a man-made system, so maybe there's some complex solution to this we just haven't realized yet despite the physical limits that you talk about in terms of efficiencies and heat transfer and things that, frankly, I don't really understand that well. But there are natural systems that we do depend on that are showing signs of stress related to rising heat. So in August of 2017, the same month that Europe was experiencing that terrible heat wave, Lucifer, the temperature and humidity in Kuwait got so high that birds started dropping from the sky. And in 2014, an estimated 100,000 bats fell out of the sky and died from heat waves in Australia. And that heat wave that passed through Sydney of this year, well, this affected bats again. Hundreds of baby bats were found dead, with thousands more expected to die from this heat wave that essentially boiled their brains. Of course, other animals were affected too. Birds were dehydrated, and many four-legged animals burned their paws. But before we talk about how animals are affected by this rising heat, David, what about the crops that we depend on, the very food that we eat? Well, in 2016, the very first study of its kind looked at the relationship between global crop production and extreme weather from 1964 to 2007. And it found that drought and extreme heat reduced production of crops like rice, wheat, and corn, these cereal crops, by 10%. The effects of drought were seen most significantly after 1984 as it's been getting worse and it will continue to get worse. And it goes without saying that as we are on track to add a couple billion more people to the earth by 2050, we will need to increase agricultural yields significantly just to maintain current consumption levels. In sub-Saharan Africa alone, for example, crop production will need to triple to feed its population growth by 2050. Yeah, but where's the research on at what temperature corn starts popping into popcorn directly in the fields? Think how much microwave power that would save. The research for that, David, is still pending, but we are very excited to track the progress of that. This, it may be the silver lining in this episode. But there's another crop, David, that has me worried more than just corn, and that's the coffee plant. So the coffee arabica plant accounts for about 60 to 65% of global coffee production. And it's grown in the tropics all over the world. In some places, it can be harvested year-round. In other places, the harvests are done by season. And these plants take a while to mature. It takes between three to four years before they start yielding fruit. And it can be up to seven years for full maturation. Well, a recent study found that these plants are extremely sensitive to heat waves. When Arabica plants were exposed to short-term simulated heat waves of 49 degrees Celsius for either 45 or 90 minutes, they were severely damaged. They took a while to recover. Their water efficiency declined. Get to the point, Daniel. Is my coffee safe or not? Come on, we got to talk about what's important here. Okay, you're asking the right questions, David. Well, every single plant, regardless of age, that experienced this short burst of heat lost the ability to flower, reproduce, and most importantly, to make fruit. That means no more coffee. And although 49 degrees Celsius may sound high, heat waves of that magnitude and higher are incoming and will be occurring at much greater frequency than ever before, especially in these regions where this plant is grown. And further, There was no lower bound on this study. Scientists just looked at 49 degrees Celsius, and they have no idea when this effect kicks in. So it could be 47, 45, in which case that high upper bound temperature is even lower. Well, you know, David, whenever I read one of these studies, it always reminds me of how little we really know about this world. I mean, you take coffee, for example. It's been cultivated for at least 1,100 years. And in our modern time, we are, quote, discovering for the first time, some pretty basic facts about the plant in terms of its ability to adapt to different environments. 
That makes me wonder how much of the natural world we lack a basic understanding of simply because there's no perceived economic significance. And as long as we can reap some economic value out of something, we go forward exploiting that thing full steam ahead. And it's only when the economic returns of that activity become threatened do we decide to look back, study, and try to understand it. And we only do that in search of some technological band-aid we might be able to invent to keep us moving full steam ahead. And it's not just coffee facing these problems, but chocolate, even marijuana. These are crops that are going to be impacted by these heat waves that dramatically cut yields or, in the cases like coffee, might completely eliminate them. In fact, well, we found one study looking at the high temperature effects and we're trying to find which crops would actually benefit from this. And in an ironic twist from whoever is uh, creating our hell world, the only crop that actually benefits from these increased temperatures and CO2 levels combined is, well, sugarcane. Which, as we've discussed in our sugar episode, David, is... No bueno. (laughs) Is not good. But the hubris of our scientific knowledge is not limited to simply researching these agricultural plants, but also with life and livestock itself. Heat can reduce the ability for cattle and other livestock to produce protein. It can have other health impacts on animals as well, and this rising heat will have a direct impact on meat production. So perhaps not surprising at this point, the answer that some scientists are looking for is in the form of a $700,000 grant to study the genetics of a particularly heat-resistant cow. They want to identify the genes that are responsible for this heat resistance and potentially edit other species to withstand this heat. I love this one because it's such a great example of the way that we approach problem solving these days. Oh no, we've got a terrible problem, you know, that is anthropogenic climate warming. We burn too much fossil fuel, it's making the world hot. Well, you know, how do we fix it? We talk about we have to suck it out with technology that doesn't exist. You know, everyone ignoring the simple answer, stop burning fossil fuels. Well, here too, researchers saying, well, we're going to run out of this livestock. We're not going to have cattle. So instead of saying, well, maybe we should switch to eating less cattle, something that would, again, benefit this climate change, this dramatic warming that we're seeing and said, no, let's instead take the genes from some cattle, crisper them into other cattle with who knows what effects, and uh, hope that that ends up being a fix that can allow us to continue eating beef as unsustainable as it may be, well into our hot and increasingly hot future. Well, this is exactly what I mean by our system that only looks back when it detects a disruption to business as usual and doesn't bother to address some of the systemic causes of this. And like I mentioned how historically humans adapt to the local environment, this is a perfect example of how we are now trying to adapt the local environment to this very top-down global economy. We have the need to produce meat. We have the desire to eat meat. Therefore, we must make our cows adapt to whatever problems we're causing to keep that system going. And of course, it's not just livestock that will be suffering under these increased heats, but ourselves. That is, high temperatures have dramatic effects on our bodies in all sorts of different, interesting, and unexpected ways. The heat stroke is a serious illness, and it results when body temperatures go above 40 degrees Celsius or about 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And many factors can contribute to it. The humidity, obviously the air temperature, how much physical exertion a person is undergoing, but also the drugs they're on, like alcohol or something like coffee, other diuretics. And some people, as you would expect, are more susceptible to heat stroke than others. The elderly and the ill are at the greatest risk. And the way this heat kills is not totally and fully understood because there are so many ways that heat can trigger death in a person. It's very complex and there are at least five physiological phenomenon that can occur in the body which can impact any combination of seven vital organs. And so these physiological phenomenons being things like inflammation, inadequate blood supply, and of course the vital organs that can be impacted being our brain, our heart, our liver, So what actually happens when the body, well, first the body attempts to transfer heat away from the vital organs. And it does that by redirecting warm blood to the skin, which can then sweat and take that hot water away through evaporation. And also the heart can get stressed, leading to a risk for cardiac arrest. This overheating also usually combines with other complications like dehydration and potassium deficiency. 
and the redirection of this blood makes organs vulnerable to toxins. Bacteria from the gut can leak out and enter the blood supply, and clots can form in the blood which increase the risk of hypoxia. And that's just to name a few. And of course, the most at risk are in general the elderly, children, and the ill, as these individuals have compromised ability to regulate some of these physiological mechanisms. But also anyone that is forced to do physical labor, which is predominantly poor people, are at much higher risk for this. And historically, we thought these heat stroke risks were limited to the time of heat stroke and shortly after while the body recovers. But the 1995 Chicago heat wave, researchers found something interesting. So there were many people admitted to hospitals for heat stroke at the time. In fact, 739 people died from these heat waves, which actually the temperature was even tremendously hot with the hottest day reaching 41 degrees Celsius, illustrating just how risky these even moderate heat waves can be. But researchers took this chance to examine people who were admitted to hospitals for heat stroke and followed their health for years afterwards. And they found something extraordinary. Heat stroke originally was thought to only be a risk within the couple of hours of when it first happened. Once you were out of the initial problems, well, then you were going to be fine. But in this study, they found that of the patients they followed, well, nearly half of these patients which were admitted for heat stroke died within one year. 21% before released from the hospital. So these are the people that died from the initial heat stroke symptoms. But additional 28% of them died after release sometime during the year, indicating that maybe these heat stroke problems have more profound effects than researchers were currently aware of. And this research is currently still ongoing. And many of these survivors suffered from permanent loss of independent function. One third had severe functional impairment at discharge. And none of these patients improved over the course of the year. Something that shocked researchers. Yeah, it is interesting that the dangers of heat are not always just the risk of dying from heat stress, but it can affect our health in many ways, including our mental health. And this has been well documented. A hospital in Vietnam, for example, found that higher ambient temperatures were related to higher hospital admissions for depression and other mental disorders. And a study that looked at over 53,000 people in Australia discovered that increases in both temperature and humidity associate significantly with an increase in people experiencing high and very high distress, which is a combination of depression and anxiety. Other studies have shown similar relationships between heat and happiness, general mood, and even overall life satisfaction. And something I think that we can all relate to, other studies have found that there's a dramatic increase in irritability and aggression on higher temperature days. So I love this because it's, it, I think it's really funny here that we have a world that's getting hotter. So we have all these increased mental problems, depression, aggression, anxiety, all sorts of things. And we combine that also with the increased carbon dioxide load that we've discussed in very great depth in episode seven, Last Gasp, where we are also seeing increases in anxiety, mental problems, lower cognitive abilities. And we are making ourselves a species dumber, more aggressive, uh, more depressed and just generally suffering from more mental woes than ever before while trying to deal with these problems in a stressed world that's just going to get even more difficult to navigate as time goes on. Uh, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, it looks like the odds are increasingly stacked against us. And David, when we were discussing our infrastructure, our electrical grid, and how it will have to respond to this rising heat, it's pretty obvious that there's going to be some tremendous economic consequences just from those factors alone. But the effect that this rising heat has on humans, on this mental health, on this physical health, well, that's going to have an extremely large effect on our economy because so much of our economy depends on human labor. Because really, in our technologically advanced world, how much is really automated at this point? We have computers that automate a lot of paperwork, but when it comes to our basic needs, things like agriculture, our shelter, and the clothing that we wear, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, we still rely fundamentally on human labor. And those of us who live in more temperate or tolerable environments, we may feel that we are shielded from this rising heat. But when it becomes more difficult to labor in the agricultural fields that we've outsourced to harsher environments... That is one-third of the world's population, to be clear. That's an enormous amount of the population involved in this industry. Well, there's going to be a direct economic impact felt all over in places where that food eventually winds up on grocery shelves. I mean, you had heat spikes in 2017 
that prompted some cities to declare mandatory holidays so that workers would be prevented from coming to work and risking their health. So let's consider. Heat makes the job dangerous, so you have to halt the work. Well, can our global economy survive abrupt, frequent, variable, and unpredictable pauses in economic activity from things like these forced mandatory holidays? And it's not just us that are saying that. In the regions of the world that will be most heavily impacted by heat, economic productivity is expected to decline by 18% by 2050. And it's not hard to imagine why. Well, for one, you've got 1.4 billion people that live in India and Pakistan alone, which we'll get to in terms of what they're experiencing right now. But this is a place where a significant amount of our global population lives. A majority of these people are poor, they work in manual labor jobs. They're often exposed to additional heat because of the work they do and the conditions that they live in. And these people are going to be living in some of the hottest conditions in the world. And when you do manual labor under these extreme conditions, well, it's hard to be productive. And we're already seeing impacts of this high heat on people's health and productivity at large scales. In some countries that rely on a lot of outdoor labor in high heat areas, so places like Latin America and India, Chronic kidney disease is rapidly expanding among populations, primarily affecting young and middle-aged poor people. It's one of the many health crises going on around the world, and although the cause has not been exactly determined yet, its prevalence among people working for long periods in heat suggests that heat stress is a contributing factor. Some people have suggested that as many as a quarter of some of these populations are affected by this chronic kidney disease. And in terms of general mortality, David, heat has become the largest cause of weather-related deaths all over the world. Even in the United States, a place where we don't typically think of having high periods of heat stress. A 2007 study that looked at 50 U.S. cities found that between 1989 and 2000, deaths related to extreme temperatures in the United States rose about 1.5% from extreme cold, but 5.7% due to extreme heat. The biggest impacts were felt in densely populated cities, especially those that lack air conditioning. And the conclusion is interesting. It says, quote, These findings suggest that increases in heat-related mortality due to global warming are unlikely to be compensated for by decreases in cold-related mortality and that population acclimatization to heat is still incomplete, end quote. So in other words, we're not adapting to climate change. And as we'll see when we get to a discussion about wet bulb temperature, the prospects for future human adaption to climate change to these rising temperatures is not looking very good. It's really interesting. When I mentioned heat to people when I was researching this episode, I don't think people realized it was such a killer. When we think about natural disasters, at least here in the United States, you think about hurricanes, you think about tornadoes, maybe ice storms, flooding for sure. And those are the big killers, right? Mm -hmm. Well. Heat is number one by a good bit. Flooding is number two. Hurricanes are somewhere down even farther than that. And the things that get all this press coverage that we concentrate on aren't, in fact, the most dangerous problems, which, considering some of the things we've talked about on the show, shouldn't be surprising at all. But as temperatures increase, and increase they have, well, this loss of life has increased dramatically. So from 2000 to 2010, mortality from heat waves has increased by over 2,300%. And you know, the main reason it seems that we're not adapting well to this climate change, at least in terms of our direct biological interaction with extreme temperatures, is that adaptation works best under consistent and predictable environments. And the climate is becoming increasingly variable and unpredictable. So a person living in a consistently hot region is actually at lower risk of heat death than someone living in a more moderate or temperate region, but experiences unpredictable spikes in temperature. And in 2012, scientists examined heat-related deaths in about 135 U.S. cities over a 20-year period from 1985 to 2006 among elderly people with chronic disease. They wanted to know how variability in temperature impacted short-term deaths. And they found that as the variability in the summer temperatures increased, deaths increased among people with chronic disease specifically a one-degree increase in the standard deviation for temperature in summertime, could increase mortality by 5% among these vulnerable populations. But these deaths are occurring right 
now. As we mentioned, Pakistan is one of the countries being most heavily impacted by climate change. And this rising heat is a big part of that. In Pakistan, heat deaths have become serious enough that locals dig mass graves ahead of expected heat waves to better prepare for the surge of corpses that they know they will have to deal with. This is not some sort of apocalyptic Mad Max future. This is occurring, once again, right now. India is one area where many factors are coming together to spell tragedy for huge swaths of people that simply won't be able to cope. The incoming heat for people that don't have the infrastructure to shield themselves with is a big part of this tragedy. The Tom Reuters Foundation interviewed a 54-year-old woman a few months ago near East India's coast who described the difficulties of living in an area that is experiencing longer summers and higher temperatures, sometimes well over 115 degrees Fahrenheit. So this woman, she lives in a shack, and the only air conditioning available to her is the practice of laying sacks down on her tin roof and spraying them with water every couple hours. She and her neighbors, they sleep outside at night, hoping for a breeze that usually never comes. And because of the heat, they can't sleep more than three to four hours before they have to get up and go to work. This is exacerbated by India's enormous slum population. And these people are some of the greatest risk from this rising heat. These shacks trap the heat. There's no air conditioning. They're overcrowded and chronic illnesses that can make a person up to four times more likely to die from heat are common in these environments. Of everywhere in the world, India appears to be on the tipping point of a much more serious threat. A study concludes that if the mean summer temperature in India rises by just 0.5 degrees Celsius, which we're well on track for, the probability of heat-related mass mortality will more than double. In addition, if the average number of heat wave days in India goes up by just two, the risk for mass mortality also doubles. So we've been talking about temperatures that are hot and how bad it is when things get too hot. But again, I suppose someone could still try to argue the point. But humans will simply adapt. We're very good at it. We survive in the Arctic. We survive in the desert. We'll be fine. And it is true that our bodies are good regulators of heat. We maintain a core temperature of 37 degrees Celsius or 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And when we exert ourselves through physical activity or when air temperatures rise, our bodies shed heat through the skin. Warm blood is diverted away from those vital organs to the skin where we make sweat. Our body heat is transferred to that sweat, and then the sweat evaporates away, carrying that transferred heat away from us. And that's why we can survive, even in extreme temperatures over 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius, and it's why we'll be able to withstand even greater temperatures of 55 degrees Celsius, which is 130 degrees Fahrenheit. It's not pleasant, the risk of heat stroke is very high, but it's doable. It's doable because the body can sweat that heat away. But what happens when the body cannot do that? What happens if there is enough humidity in the air that our sweat has nowhere to go? Sweat evaporation is possible because water vapor is less dense than oxygen and nitrogen, which comprises the air around us. So when it leaves our body, it naturally rises away from us. But if the air around us is saturated with water already, well, there's nowhere for that evaporated water vapor to go, and our body cannot cool down. And this is where the concept of wet bulb temperature comes into play. Wet bulb temperature is the temperature of a surface that is being constantly cooled through water evaporation. And it's really easy to measure. If you take a standard thermometer or heat detector and you put a soaked cloth or sock or something over it, you'll find out what the wet bulb temperature is. It's always going to be less than the standard air temperature and it simulates the temperature of our skin as it cools itself through sweat. And in hot conditions, in order to maintain that core body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, well, our skin cannot exceed 35 degrees Celsius. Well, if the wet bulb temperature, this measure of ambient air temperature and humidity, reaches that 35C, well, there's nothing our body can do to maintain core temperature. We basically cook and die. And we should clarify, David, the point at which this wet bulb temperature gets so high that we simply die, that 35 degrees Celsius, well, that applies to a human being that is butt naked, experiencing extremely fast gale strength winds while lying motionless in the shade. Oh, and constantly being doused with water. Once you reach this 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature, there is nothing your body can do to survive 
The only thing that can prevent death is air conditioning. And so it's not just a matter of, oh, it's 35 degrees Celsius, so that means it's wet bulb. But like Daniel mentioned, it's a lot more complicated, and it ends up being almost a graph of different temperatures and humidity levels that affect this ultimate wet bulb temperature. A moderately high atmospheric temperature, but a high humidity level, can have a higher wet bulb temperature than a very high atmospheric temperature and low humidity, a dry heat, so to speak. And this sounds sort of confusing when you're trying to explain it out in all these terms, but in practicality, you can understand it very well. You go outside during a dry heat, you're sweating, you're hot, it's 110, it's 35, it's 40 degrees Celsius outside, whatever it is, but your body is able to cool itself. Your sweat isn't pooling, it's carried away. You're uncomfortable, but it's not too bad. Actually, David, I've been in the Midwestern United States and I've done some hikes in the desert of Utah. I've been to the Grand Canyon before. And what's really interesting is that you can be hiking all day in this extreme heat, but you don't even see the sweat on your body. It evaporates so fast. Yeah, as, as long as you stay hydrated, you're ultimately going to be fine because that humidity level is so low. And if you're staying hydrated and drinking water, you don't even get that tired. But of course, Daniel and I are not from the dry Midwest. We are from the humid South. And there, a 90 degree Fahrenheit temperature or 35 degrees Celsius and the high humidity is brutal. You feel like you're cooking. You stand around, you're soaked in your sweat because it just isn't going anywhere. It's not being carried away. So this is a very ready example of when wet bulb temperature is approaching the actual atmospheric temperature. At these very high humidity levels, the functional wet bulb temperature becomes much closer to what you're actually feeling or seeing on a thermometer. And just like all of us have experienced, when you're working in these high humidity, high temperature areas, you get tired quickly. You exhaust yourself with very little effort. Well, wet bulb, that 35 degrees Celsius limit on human life, it becomes much lower if you are doing anything active at all. If there's no wind, if you step out into the sun, if you're not healthy, if you're old or young or frail, anything you do that makes your body more stressed than it normally is under its peak performance in the shade with gale force winds, butt naked, covered in water, anything that breaks away from that ideal situation, your functional wet bulb temperature, where human life begins to become impossible, is much lower and all that much more attainable in this increasingly hot, increasingly humid, climate change-based future. And so far, the highest recorded wet bulb temperature has been 31 degrees Celsius. And for a long time, People assumed it wouldn't rise above this, and that has to do with that convection process that we introduced in the beginning of this episode, which is that as air becomes more humid and it warms up, well, the more likely it is to rise into the atmosphere where it can then be cooled down and release that water as rain or thunderstorms. But like we mentioned, as more and more humidity is added to our atmosphere, this injection of energy as a result of climate change, well, that threshold is raised. That air that wants to rise is in a warmer atmosphere, so it takes even greater heat for it to rise. And there have been some papers that have attempted to model what the future of our world looks like in terms of the wet bulb temperatures we'll be experiencing in different regions. And some of it's going to be determined by local conditions. So, for example, the Arabian Gulf region, which is Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq. So those countries that border the Arabian or Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, this is one region that's going to be experiencing a higher wet bulb temperature than others because of the local conditions there. The normal process of convection is interrupted by specific air patterns that have to do with the monsoon regions to the east. You have the Red Sea and the Gulf, which both absorb a relatively high amount of sunlight and all that heat causes more water to evaporate, which raises the wet bulb temperature. And the sea breeze also brings this tremendous hot air into coastal cities. And because of the combination of these processes, beginning in about 50 years, all coastal regions surrounding the Gulf and the Red Sea will begin experiencing maximum temperatures above the current 31 degrees Celsius wet bulb maximum. And some of these regions will be above 35 degrees which will make them completely uninhabitable. In other areas where the wet bulb temperature does not exceed 35 degrees Celsius, well, the regular ambient temperature might go higher than 60 degrees Celsius, such as in Kuwait, which is 140 degrees Fahrenheit. For those of you curious, at 60 degrees Celsius, a relative humidity of just 20% puts that wet bulb figure over 35. Well, that's an interesting way to phrase it, David. 
If humidity rises to some percent, then wet bulb temperature is at a dangerous level. And that's what stands out to me the most about this increasingly hot environment. The fact that this heat will make some regions of our world dangerous to live in, but it won't necessarily be obvious in its approach. There are places with population densities as high as 1 billion people where, as we'll see, wet bulb temperature has a chance of reaching fatal levels at different times throughout the year. And because that chance is based on a number of hard-to-predict factors like wind speed, humidity level, direct sunlight, and temperature, people will continue to live in regions that experience uninhabitable conditions at certain parts of the year, but there will be little to no warning before local weather patterns cause large numbers of people to simply die. So what does the future look like in terms of this extreme temperature? Well, it's going to be hot. By the 2060s, some 700 million people could experience a wet bulb temperature of 32 degrees Celsius per year, with one or two events every single year. About 250 million people could experience a 33 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature every year, and 50 million people, 34 degrees Celsius. And we mentioned that a wet bulb temperature of 35C is the point at which any human, lying still, etc., will die. But that practical limit, where if we're not in perfect conditions, we can survive it? Well, researchers believe that it's just about 32 degrees Celsius. That's the point at which doing things outside become difficult or impossible and will kill you depending on your age and health. And again, that figure, by 2060, 700 million people are expected to experience this temperature at least once every single year. And that's by the 2060s. So what are we looking at by 2100, the end of the century? If we continue with the current trends of greenhouse gas emissions, three out of every four people in the world will be exposed to heat conditions every single year that have a high chance of death. And some of the places that will experience this the most will be in places like Southeast United States, Latin America, Africa and the Middle East, South Asia, India, and parts of Australia. More recent research from 2017 found that by the 2070s, these high wet bulb readings that now occur maybe once a year could in fact prevail 100 to 250 days of the year, so a third to two-thirds of the year in some parts of the tropics. And it's not just the tropics. Here in the southeast United States, wet bulb temperatures now sometimes reach an already oppressive 29 or 30 degrees Celsius. But by the 2070s or 2080s, these weather events could occur 25 to 40 days every single year. These are conditions that make it almost impossible to work outside, which is not going to be good for any of the local economy in these areas. And you mentioned the difference between dry temperatures and humid temperatures and how humid temperatures feel much worse than dry ones. Well, it's not an exact science, but trying to figure out what it feels like to be in a 35 degrees Celsius wet bulb temperature. Some researchers think that the equivalent dry temperature feeling is close to 170 degrees Fahrenheit or 77 degrees Celsius, which is hot, David. Hot, hot, hot. Okay, so this is bleak, Daniel. You were basically saying that we are approaching a biological limit to what people can survive. In these conversations that we've had in these shows so far, we've introduced problems before, but we've always insinuated that if we are clever and if we are responsible, then there might be things that we can do to get around this. But with wet bulb temperatures approaching 35C, approaching that 30, 31, 32 degree deadly marks for most humanity and making it impossible to even really functionally go outside anymore. And predominantly, like we said, in areas that don't have air conditioning or can't rely on electricity all day long. Well, this is a giant problem that we can't just adapt around. There's no answer here that says, well, if we're sustainable, we move away from these things that we'll be able to survive. Because at least for a wet bulb, the conversation ends that every single person on earth who's going to be in these environments needs access to air conditioning. And that's the least sustainable thing we'll ever say on this show. It's a huge contradiction because the air conditioning, which is so inefficient, which is taking so much energy, is itself contributing to the very thing that is causing the need for air conditioning in the first place. I can't imagine a future where it's you know, 2060, 2075, and the UN is passing some sort of resolution that's saying access to air conditioning is a human right. 
but it might be something that we see in some day after these first mega heat waves come rolling through and the world becomes associated with the idea of wet bulb. I wouldn't be surprised that this is what happens, which is crazy to wrap my mind around. And of course, in my mind, this is just even more reason to stop producing so much greenhouse gas because, again, a lot of these predictions in terms of what the future looks like in terms of heat, well, it's based on business as usual greenhouse gas emissions. That's what's driving this heat in the first place. While ignoring feedback loops, I got to plug that in there because I know I know we love we love talking about business as usual, but business as usual, according to groups like the IPCC, also ignores a lot of feedback loops. So their business as usual, even then, is conservative to what we're actually seeing play out, which is maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing so many articles that have the headline faster than expected, worse than expected, and ultimately, unfortunately, deadlier than thought possible. Well, I'm sure the air conditioning industry won't have any problem with this rising heat. And that conflict between economics and sustainability and our ability to survive is in part probably why some of these reports that the IPCC endorses and some of these predictions about how business as usual is contributing to this climate change are so conservative in their estimates. Because acknowledging the problem of this climate change is ultimately bad for business. Because so much of our economic activity is contributing to it, to acknowledge that means that we would have to curtail our economic activity. And that's just something that, never mind businesses don't want, but a lot of countries don't want. A lot of nations that are trying to compete with the more established developed countries. And maybe even beyond that, when we're honest about the numbers that we're actually facing, when we look at how much CO2 and CO2 equivalents are actually entering the atmosphere, whether from anthropogenic sources or from natural sources or these feedback loops that we've triggered, turned on with our actions, well, the picture begins to look a lot more hopeless. Is the world able to do anything when they're facing realistically 4C, 5C degrees Celsius? Remember, when we first set these limits years ago, 1C was the line that could not be passed. Anything beyond that would be catastrophic. And here we sit today recording the show at a little over 0.9C, depending on which benchmark you're looking at. And they modified that goal to be saying 1.5C is the one that we absolutely couldn't pass. Well, wouldn't it look like we were going to approach that one too, because no one wanted to actually play this game where you have to hurt your economy, hurt yourself in order to make a big difference to actually impact the world. Well, we raised that limit instead. We just said, oh, never, never mind. We were wrong. It's, uh, it's definitely 2C. That's, that's the, the, don't cross that one. I imagine the next uh, climate conference, they'll be like, oh, yeah, definitely. It's 2.5. Don't worry, guys. We still have plenty of time. We don't need to worry about any of this BEX or DAX. And also, we'll integrate you know, even more magical solutions in our modeling. But we've just been kicking the can down the road for decades. And now we can start to see where this is finally going to lead. And that is these mega heat waves all across the world, devastating livestock, devastating agriculture, cutting yields 10, 20 percent, even when we're not facing these complete crop failures like we see potentially with coffee, with cocoa. My favorite drink and my favorite food. To stressing our energy infrastructure, to having to rebuild our world to deal with these higher temperatures and the costs associated with that, and ultimately to the human lives that will be lost because of this, which Again, there's nothing we can do except extend these air conditionings and the power for it. Maybe once again, the only time we're going to be recommending techno fixes here on this show, but that is it. We are out of options when it comes to these ultra wet bulb scenarios. Leading up to that, though, there are some small things communities and individuals can do. Building new houses, we need to be responsible and thinking about the fact that we are facing a very hot future. Houses need to be designed in order to be more economic in their cooling practices so that even if AC isn't running, the houses themselves are efficient. They're light colored, they have blinds, they have overhangs. They're built facing the right way. Vegetation is there to shield them. We've talked about this before, designing roads that are much lighter, cooler, more reflective of heat so we don't have these urban heat islands. Of course, trying to do that in a sustainable way that doesn't involve plastic paint covering all our roads that eventually find its way into the animals of the ocean and ultimately into each and every one of us. Increased research on crops that are hardy, things like durum wheat, that maybe can survive these potential heat waves even a little bit better, as well as research on the health impacts of heat on both people, on livestock, and agriculture as a whole. And ultimately, maybe this is a good chance for us collectively and globally as a world population to reflect on the situation that we've gotten ourselves into. 
There is no easy way out of this. And these temperatures don't stop rising in 2060 and 2070 and 2100. They will continue to rise well into the future beyond that time. We tend to end these conversations about the future in 2100 because that's when the estimates end. But make no mistake, these temperatures will continue rising. This 35C wet bulb threshold will be reached increasingly commonly in larger parts of the world. We might face a future where large swaths of the world, some of the most heavily populated parts of the world, are just purely uninhabitable. And once again, these uninhabitable heat events will likely be sporadic and hard to predict, which means it may be a good time to start thinking now about our long-term preparedness to withstand extreme heat and to encourage communities, especially in more outdoor labor-intensive economies, to have procedures and plans in place for responding quickly to sudden onsets of high wet bulb temperatures. And following along that line, perhaps we in wealthier countries should consider the ethical nature of supporting an economy that forces laborers in the tropics to risk their lives in dangerous heat conditions so that we can import cheap bananas and other agricultural products for our consumption in the luxury and comfort of air-conditioned buildings. That wraps up another week here at Ashes Ashes. That's a lot to process, but I hope you'll be thinking about it for the next couple days. If you'd like to learn more about any of the things we talked about, or maybe play with the cool wet bulb calculator, or find the link sources and our full transcript of this episode, you can do all of that and much more on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. And we will never use ads to support this show, and we will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to crowd your news feeds. So, if you like this show and you would like us to keep going, you can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read it. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at ashes ashes cast next week we're gonna take a break from all the negative news and look at something positive some people working towards a more sustainable practical future and we're really excited about this and hope you'll tune in for that discussion but until then this is ashes ashes bye bye